Welcome to the Kelly Patrick Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. In today's episode, I am joined by one of my favorite political guests, Spike Cohen. Spike told me after we recorded the episode that per his, uh, the guy who manages his schedule, he, he told him before the episode today that of all the interviewers who have ever interviewed Spike Cohen, the Kelly Patrick Show comes in at number two. I think we're tied with another podcast for the number two uh, for the most appearances by Spike Cohen. And number one on that list, Spike has been on Kennedy with uh, Fox Business Network the most. So Kennedy, you know, sometimes will have on some libertarian leaning guests like Dave Smith or Spike Cohen. And so Spike, he's on there, I think he said every other week, something like that. So of course, Kennedy takes the cake, but the Kelly Patrick show was number two. I really appreciate Spike for coming on the show today. If you're a fan of the Kelly Patrick show, I ask that you please send some referrals the way of my sponsors. The title sponsor of the show is Louisville Combat Academy located at 7908 Beulah Church Road, Louisville, Kentucky, 40228. They have a great MMA program, but also even if you aren't planning on fighting in the cage, they have a great jujitsu program for adults, female-friendly classes, and a great kids program also. Check out Louisville Combat Academy. Heidi Solars Coots. Heidi is a licensed clinical social worker and licensed clinical alcohol and drug counselor, specializing in treating anxiety, depression, trauma, and addiction with a mindful and holistic approach. Heidi is actually my mother, and I can attest she is a saint. Call her at 502-457-1823. Virtual and telephonic appointments are available anywhere in the United States. Veercast Digital Media. Veercast Digital Media at veercast.com. Matt McCarthy runs Veercast, and he is also the producer for The Kelly Patrick Show. They do video production, aerial drone photography, web design, and podcast production. Contact them at info at veercast.com to start your own video show or podcast. Also, my health insurance practice, Benefits Analysis Corporation. Based in Troy, Ohio, I work from my Louisville, Kentucky office. I can help anyone in the United States with their health insurance needs. I'm an independent broker for health insurance solutions for individuals, families, Medicare eligible individuals, and also groups. I can also write life insurance, and long-term care. If you want to support the podcast, please send me some referrals. 502-386-0978. Welcome to the Kelly Patrick Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. In today's episode, I am joined by returning guest. We have Spike Cohen on the line with us. Spike, how are you today? I'm doing great, man. And I think it's it's uh, kind of ideal and serendipitous that we are recording the Kelly Patrick <laughs> Show on St. Patrick's Day. So, uh, yeah. Uh, I don't know what the phrase even is. The, the, the I know there's some uh, greeting phrase, but happy St. Patrick's Day. Thank you very much. I um, According to what Ancestry.com, which I did, many would say it's dumb to send your DNA to a big corporation, <laughs> um, but I've done it and, uh, you know, it's in the past already, but I'm, I think I'm like close to 80% Irish, never been to Ireland, nice. but for what it's worth, I am actually descendant of people from Ireland. Very good. Well, 80% happy St. Patrick's Day. Or no, 100%. Every, it's St. Patrick's Day is for everyone. So I appreciate it. You going to do any uh, celebration for St. Patrick's Day today? 
Well, I've got, as you can see, the audience can't, but as you can see, I've got my matcha green tea, which I, I yes. drink actually every day. Uh, the problem is, see, I'm I'm boring. I'm I'm been sober for uh, going on 17 years now, so my celebration is is pretty light. But uh, yeah, actually, my form of celebration now is just being home and relaxing and not being on the on the trail talking with folks. So I'm just enjoying a nice quiet evening in. Same for me, to be honest. Nothing too wild. At a certain point yeah. in my life, I would have went out and done some partying today, but I'm not oh, yeah. there. Yes. Not there right yes. now. So I, I'm happy to enjoy it in a, a similar to you in a sober, just kind of boring old man type <laughs> approach. Spike, <laughs> yes, we have been uh, doing episodes uh, together for just over three years. I just realized it uh, yeah. shortly before the. Uh, election, so it's been well over three years really now, yeah. um, you you were able to come on when you, of course, were the vice presidential candidate for 2020, uh, you mm-hmm. alongside Joe Jorgensen. Um, being we've been doing episodes for a few years, if this is the first time someone has heard me get to chat with you, Spike, could you do a little bit of a recap? You don't have to go into the entirety of your history. We've done that in previous episodes. <laughs> but who are you, Spike Cohen? Um, what is your mission? And, and I know youarethepower.net uh, is the, uh, the website that you run a lot of your program through. But mm-hmm. you're very active. You'll have some upcoming uh, university tour dates, I guess, in this upcoming week, I think specifically in yep. Ohio. But who is Spike Cohen politically? And what have you been doing for the past few years? Sure. So I am a uh, libertarian activist and have been heavily involved in the movement for the past few years. And uh, in 2020, I was the uh, vice presidential candidate for the Libertarian Party. And uh, coming out of that, I realized that we have a lot of growing to do, not just in the party, but in the movement in general. And you know, when we talk about growing, we usually talk about growing in numbers, and that's a big part of it. But we have growing to do in terms of understanding how we can actually connect with people uh, in their communities, in our communities where we live. I think for a long time, we thought we could run candidates for office, have the best platform or the best policies, and eventually that would win. But that's not how things work. People need to see it demonstrated for them how liberty works, and, and in contrast, how statism and the failed policies of Republicans Republicans and Democrats doesn't work. Um, And so that's what we're doing with You Are the Power. We are helping people who need help in their communities. We're getting people organized around that and uh, around those causes. And we're using that to grow the liberty movement. Uh, We can talk more about specifics on that, but that's what we do with You Are the Power. Uh, And uh, yeah, like you said, the website is youarethepower.net. And as part of that, yes, we are doing a, uh, we're actually doing a college tour uh, for three colleges uh, in uh, University of Cincinnati, University of Ohio in Athens, and Kent University uh, next week, uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. And uh, our student activists there are uh, are heavily involved in the movement, and we're going there to talk with them about the issues that they're facing. Uh, obviously, a big one is going to be the the train derailment that just happened there in uh, in East uh, Palestine or Palestine. I need to find out which 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 how you pronounce that, but in uh, in their state and uh, many of the other issues that they've been facing and uh, talking about how we can grow the liberty movement and uh, and have solutions to make sure things like this don't happen in the future. I recently heard your episode you did with Zuby. Great episode. I absolutely loved it. Yes. But one of the things you mentioned was uh, prior to your activism and really you identifying as a libertarian, you were mm-hmm. 
as in your words, uh, I believe you said a neoconservative. So around September yep. 11th, 2001, you bought into, let's just call it the propaganda. I did. I, uh, as did I. I mean, a lot of people did. We were attacked. Most people did. Yes. <laughs> Most people did. Ron Paul didn't in yeah. hindsight. And there was obviously yep. some people who did yep. not. So I want to give them credit. Mm -hmm. But you're mm -hmm. right. I, I fell into that. I'm 39 years old now. So I was, you know, uh, of... Uh, the age where I was ready to vote. And, you know, that was right around yep. the time for me when I was starting to form some political opinion, opinions. And that impacted me. Your, um, your uh, uh, transition eventually into being a full-fledged, I guess, anarcho-libertarian uh, took place over the next, you know, from 2001 through when your activism really started. I guess that was in 2000, what was it, 18 or 19? Yeah, so I, I started being publicly involved in libertarian activism around uh, 2018. Uh, I had been involved in the movement, but more in kind of a, a, a back-end level and, and not quite as publicly for a few years before that. Um, I, I'd say that I really started becoming more libertarian and less neocon probably right around 2010 2011 when i really started realizing that all those annoying things that those libertarians and and you know anti-war people had said about the war on terror and the patriot patriot act and all of that were 100 percent correct like every prediction they made was coming true and i started you know reading more about you know history i didn't really have much historical context when 9 11 happened i was 19 years old and so i just bought the the media narrative i bought the government media propaganda narrative hook line and sinker uh and i didn't know the background of of the the history of government lying us into wars and lying us into taking more of our power and more of our money and putting us into more debt and and, and making our lives harder and the consequences we suffer as a result of that. So I just didn't know. And, and seeing those predictions come true made me do some more research. And that led me to uh, becoming a libertarian. And over time, as uh, happens very often uh, when you're in the liberty movement, I became more and more libertarian over time. And, uh, you know, I, I obviously we're always growing. But I would say I, I reached my quote unquote final form of being an anarcho-capitalist. I would say probably sometime, I, I probably sometime around 2013 or so that I, I realized that that government really wasn't legitimate. It's somewhere between 2012 and 2013. I didn't really write these dates down, but looking back on some of the things that I had written and things like that, and knowing around the times that I read certain books and, and spoken with uh, certain people and, and read certain things, it, it would be right around that time frame. So about 10 years in now. So you describe yourself as an anarcho-capitalist, effective probably around 2013. Um, that is, depending on who you ask, I, I'm a former Republican myself, and so a lot of the people that, that sometimes listen to the Kelly Patrick Show are uh, probably current Republicans, that maybe they recognize some of the problems with government, mm -hmm. especially when a Democrat's in office, conveniently. <laughs> um, and so they're anti-war if Biden's ordering the war or they're anti-banker bailouts if it's Biden doing it, that type of thing. Um, but, yeah. but, but I think it's interesting and there's a little bit of a, an obstacle that comes up. I spoke with one of my friends yesterday about this. Uh, when you use the term anarchy and you associate that with mm -hmm. uh, governance of a really a, a country in our case, uh, one of the yeah. concerns could be, uh, you know, if we did not have any government, what would happen to disabled people, the poorest of the people, people who actually right, are in right. incapacitated and cannot work? And I think an answer to that sometimes is, well, uh, you know, 
if we were to take apart the federal government, which hopefully will happen at some point, uh, that would hopefully be the, the last thing to go would be to helping the people who actually need it. And of course, only uh, destroying that uh, welfare state uh, for those specific people uh, in the event that we had something else in place. But how do you handle what I assume is a common uh, question that maybe someone coming from the right would 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 bring to you if they say, "Hey, I get it. Small government's where it's at, but right, the right, whole right. anarchy thing seems a little extreme." Well, anarchy does seem extreme, right? I remember when I first was reading the things that ultimately led me to realize, you know, logically, consistently, I had to be an anarchist. I was not comfortable with that at all. I did not like that at all. Um, but I will say this. Um, when it comes to the the question of anarchy, and, and I will say usually the people asking what about the poor, what about the disabled, it's not usually people on the right asking that. Usually people on the right are asking about, you know, who would protect us from invasion and things like that. But let's 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 address the the poverty thing, um, because that isn't a, a very important thing. Uh, here's the analogy I use. Um, you know, and it's actually came from Harry Brown, who uh, was our uh, the Libertarian Party's presidential candidate in 96 and uh, 2000. And he said, you know, government is good at one thing. It comes, it breaks your legs, it steals your wallet, it uses some of the money uh, from your wallet to buy you some crutches. And then it says, hey, if it wasn't for me, you wouldn't have any crutches. And, and that's what the welfare state is. Now, here we are where a bunch of people have uh, stolen wallets and crutches who would we be to show up and say, oh, you poor thing, I'm going to fix this right now and steal their crutches and walk away? Um, I think that when we're looking at the welfare state, we need to look instead of at the idea, if, if the welfare state is a, a safety net that right now many people just live in, it's not just a safety net for them. It's been made comfortable enough where they just you know are okay with living in mediocrity, but have also been robbed of, of in many cases, of their ability to climb out by having those ladder, those rungs from the ladder removed. So unless they have a very uh, impressive vertical leap, they can't really climb out anyway. The answer is to put those rungs back to get rid of the ridiculous regulations and taxes and other things and burdens that are in the way of many people of being able to rise up out of poverty and that they themselves can also help others who, who can't get themselves out of poverty and we can also help them as well so that eventually the safety net uh, as it is isn't necessary. And so I think more so than focusing on, you know, right now, you know, the first thing to go is the welfare state. Uh, the first thing to go is the thing that, put so many people in the welfare state, like occupational licensing laws or overcriminalization, which leads to people not being able to get a job because of, uh, you know, um, victimless crime uh, felonies on their record and things like that. When you focus on those things, now you can help people get out of poverty so that eventually there isn't any kind of need for a welfare state. Uh, and, and whatever need for charity is left can easily be handled through the private sector. It can be handled through charities and, and churches and groups like You Are the Power because we do some charitable work as well. Um, and, and each of us helping one another as opposed to relying on a government that has a vested interest in keeping us at a certain level of poverty or dependence on them, uh, which is essentially what the welfare state is. When you are on these, I guess we could call it a tour, but university tour, which you have upcoming um, over the next week in Ohio, uh, try to walk myself and, and our listeners through what does that look like? Where are you meeting with people? What are you guys discussing? Is it a presentation? Is it a meet and greet? What does Spike Cohen do when he stops by a university? 
So these are going to be structured a little bit more openly. Um, the idea is to have it as more of a, I'll give a brief speech, uh, but it'll be mostly Q&A uh, and, and meet and greet and talking with the activists there. The, the idea behind this is to demonstrate to the student activists that we're working with and the student activists that are in other groups like Students for Liberty, who's one of the, the, co, um, the co-sponsors of this, this particularly, particular tour, um, that you know we support them and that we want to work with them to continue to grow the liberty movement in their campuses and in their communities. So what this is going to look more like, uh, and by the way, these are open to the public. They're being put together by the student groups uh, in, those, uh, in those universities, but these are all free and open to the public anyone can can come and attend and uh the idea is to meet the folks who are showing up uh give a brief speech uh, maybe have some other local leaders talk to them as well and uh and do some q a and answer some questions and and, and basically mingle and, and network with uh fellow like-minded liberty activists in the area one of the topics that is really hot across the united states and i guess really across the world right now is the yep. recent failure, I guess, of two uh, pretty large banks, uh, possibly a third. So there's a lot of different takes uh, when it comes to this type of a topic. Of course, you could hear someone uh, maybe, let's say on the left, or maybe not even the left, just more of an establishment, uh, either Republican or Democrat, say, that's the type of thing that happens on occasion. That's why we have the Federal Reserve. They need to step in. And maybe they're not bailing out the actual bank, but they're at least uh, making sure that no one loses money. And that's a good thing. So Spike, in your words, uh, could you describe to me what is it that happened and what are your thoughts on the handling of it by the, the Federal Reserve? Sure. So before we get into the details, the short answer is what happened is uh, a lot of uh, banks have been playing fast and uh, fast and loose with easy money. Uh, that has started to tighten up. And so their, their well-laid plans are falling apart. But deep down, they always knew that they would more than likely get bailed out uh, or at least their depositors would get bailed out, which is exactly what happened. And the solution to that is to break up that system. We need to get government out of banking. Government being involved in banking is what led to this happening in the first place. So let's get into the details on what that means. So a lot of people didn't know uh, what Silicon Valley Bank was, much less Signature Bank, which was the bank that failed a couple days later. That, that didn't get nearly as much attention because it was a much smaller bank. Um, but yet, these are the second and third largest bank failures in U.S. history, um, and the biggest one since the 2008 uh, uh, banking and mortgage uh, meltdown that happened then. Um, so uh, SVB, Silicon Valley Bank, had over $200 billion in assets and over $400 billion in deposits. Um, and it was at one point either the 14th or 16th largest lender. I forget which one of those, but it was a it was a big player. But the reason so many people had never heard of it was because it wasn't like a bank like Bank of America or Chase, which had a large retail banking section. It primarily served startups, especially tech startups, but it served startup companies. So if you were starting a new company, Silicon Valley Bank was the bank where you would put it. They had the, the, the most... Um, uh, favorable rates and services for startup companies, and it, and it was well known as a tech startup type of company. So they are bank a good bank for you to put your your tech startup money in. So what happened was in 2020, 
uh, when the uh, when when the lockdowns led to uh, a massive economic recession and uh, and also deflation because people just weren't buying as much and they weren't working and so what happened was the uh, the government did some economic stimulus quote unquote and what that means is they put out a bunch of corporate welfare they were throwing money around we all remember those PPP loans that were going out that were supposed to keep small businesses in business but there were bigger businesses that were getting tens of millions for each of their locations. Locations, uh, from it. And of course the CARES Act money, which was, you know, t- millions, billions and trillions being given away to uh, major corporations of all different sizes. And a lot of these tech startups were well healed and well positioned to get some of this money. So all of a sudden there was this big boom in startups from 2020 to 2022. So for Silicon Valley Bank, their deposits their size went from 60 billion at the end of 2019 to nearly 200 billion in 2022. They 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 more than tripled in size, and there were many smaller banks that that did this. They wanted to have a quote unquote safe place to invest their money. So what they did was they bought tens of billions of dollars worth of what's called mortgage-backed securities. And those had a yield of about one and a half percent. Now, when the banks, when the federal government is handing out trillions of dollars, and when the Federal Reserve has their uh, overnight lending rate for the banks, the the rate that they uh, charge to um, bank banks that they give money to is basically at zero percent. So it was free money. Zero percent rate, a one and a half percent safe return sounds like a good deal. And so they locked into these MBSs, these mortgage-backed securities. Well, as the Fed started ratcheting up interest rates over the last year or so, when uh, when inflation started going through the roof, suddenly they were losing money. I think it was every quarter point it went up, they lost ten billion, or they lost a billion dollars, or something like that. I forget the exact uh, formula, but they were just losing money hand over foot. And so then, what happened? This particular bank, rather than just try to take it on the chin, uh, they went and started selling their their assets. They sold them at a loss, which which panicked their investors and their depositors. They then announced that they were going to do that. They were going to sell the bank, and there was a run on that bank. All of these people that had their money invested uh, or deposited in the bank, and it was way more than two hundred and fifty thousand. They started pulling their money out. And the thing is, SVB didn't have that much money in the bank to begin with. They had most of their money out in these investments that they couldn't pull it out of. So that's what happened. It failed. And uh, Signature Bank had a very similar thing uh, on a much smaller scale where they just, they invested easy, cheap money. And when the money was no longer easy or cheap, they started losing money. And the reality is, SVB and Signature Bank are not the only banks that have done this. They were just the canaries in the coal mine. And we're going to see over the next few weeks just how many canaries there were in the coal mine. So, uh, is it safe to say, Spike, this is uh, somewhat of a a trickle down of all the stimulus and all the crazy spending our federal government did during the COVID uh, years? Absolutely. This is the natural consequences of when the federal government just hands out corporate welfare and the Federal Reserve hands out 0% loans, which basically means free money. But only to banks, not to you and me. We got to pay, you know, six, seven percent, whatever it is for the for the mortgage. They get to to pay zero percent. They get to get the money back. That's what causes all this inflation. But it also causes something called malinvestment, and that is when businesses and banks and individuals get all of this free money. They go, "Wow, free money! Surely this will never end." And they go and make investments that are stupid. But when interest rates are at 0%, the money's coming in for free, even a stupid investment can be a decent one. But the very second 
that things start to normalize a little and the rates start to go up and things start to correct, now suddenly they're losing money hand over foot. That is part of the Austrian business cycle. The government hands out money and the banks give out money. Uh, there's malinvestment that happens as a result of it. Inflation goes through the roof. The uh, uh, the, the banks start ratcheting up the rates uh, or the, the Federal Reserve starts ratcheting up the ranks, which leads all those malinvestments to fail. The banks fail and the economy fails. And then it goes right back to the government handing out free money. And it's just an endless boom bust cycle that we're in. And it's, yeah, this is the, the if you want to call it trickle down, I, I see it more of a, a, as a cycle, but this is the, the natural effect of the government handing out money hand over fist and being in control of the money supply in the first place. It leads to bad decisions. And what do we see happen? So the Biden administration says, okay, well, we're going to bail out just the depositors. We're not going to bail out the investors in the bank. We're not going to bail out the bank owners. Okay, fair enough. That's actually, that's better than the bailouts we've seen in the past. But then they announced uh, recently, I think it was yesterday, they announced that from now on, they're only going to do that for the so-called too big to fail banks. Well, that just announced to everyone that if your money isn't in one of the top, what, 20 or 30 banks, then you're screwed from now on. So they literally just said, you know, we're only going to we're only going to back the multi-trillion dollar banks. We'll never do this again for a quote unquote smaller, only two or three hundred billion dollar bank like Silicon Valley Bank. We're only going to do this for the the banks that are worth trillions and tens of trillions of dollars. So now all of these smaller banks are about to have a run on the banks. They're there. I, I predict that in the next couple of weeks, we're going to see some serious runs on the banks as this news starts to work its way through savvy depositors in these smaller banks who go, whoa, whoa wait a second. So any Anything over $250,000 is not going to be covered because my bank isn't a big bank. Well, then I'm taking my money out of this bank and putting it in a big bank. That's going to create a run on the banks. And now we're going to see if the Biden administration actually keeps up with their promise and doesn't bail out all of those depositors and banks, uh, or if they actually do it and cause a collapse of the, of the entire smaller banking ecosystem. And again, all of this is happening as a result of the federal government and the Federal Reserve handing out money like candy and pretending it's not going to do what it does every single time they do it. Spike, you publicly became active as a libertarian, I think, in 2018 and really got into it big time in 2019. Since that time, it seems that you have just had multiple <laughs> instances of speaking points handed to you on a silver platter for, <laughs> for am I exaggerating? I mean, holy shit, for the Austrian it, business cycle, the validity of libertarianism, for you to go yeah. out and preach the good word of minimal or even no government and to talk to people. Hopefully this is opening people's eyes. Over the past few years, where does this uh, bank failures, where does this rank uh, on, on your list of uh, things to point to when trying to recruit new uh, members into the liberty movement. Yeah, so the I call it a target-rich environment. The uh, ever the eternal optimist that I am, the silver lining to the increasingly dystopian nightmare scenarios that we live under is that it becomes easier and easier to let, to at the very least let people know the status quo isn't working. Then the challenge after that becomes saying 
the answer to the to you know the alternative to the status quo isn't some of these even worse ideas that are being proposed like communism or fascism it's libertarianism it's uh respecting the fact that you can make decisions better for yourself and your community can make better decisions for itself than you know a bunch of bureaucrats and cronies and politicians who in many cases are hundreds or thousands of miles away or sometimes right in your backyard but have just removed themselves from any of the consequences of their actions by doing it as a governing authority as opposed to doing doing it as an actual uh, um, stakeholder in that community. So, um, you know, ranking this specific one, uh, I would say it certainly ranks lower than the lockdowns and the COVID regime uh, in general. Um, but I will tell you, if what I'm expecting to happen happens, uh, or what I'm believing is going to happen happens, and this leads to a, uh, a domino effect of even more banks failing, which inevitably, if you see a, a collapse of smaller banking, that's going to work its way up the entire ecosystem because you're going to see all of those companies, especially if they're not uh, the depositors are not bailed out, you're going to see this massive wave of, of uh, small and medium-sized businesses going out of business overnight. You're going to see an entire sector of banking go out overnight. You're going to see the stock market fall, which means people are going to have less disposable money, which means there's going to be less money being spent, it's inevitably going to lead to an economic crash. And uh, if that happens, then that will at that time become probably the biggest talking point. I mean, I hate to think of it that way, that that these uh, things that are, are you know leading to uh, people's lives and livelihoods being destroyed overnight as a result of things they were completely out of control of being able to stop from happening or even know it was going to happen uh, uh, or, or have anything, be able to do anything to stop it. Uh, to see that as a talking point, but it is. I mean, it 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 shows that their way isn't working. And when the exact same experts, so-called experts, I'm doing the quote hands right now, when the so-called experts, the same people who said, oh no, everything is under control, we've got this under control, uh, you know, we have power and so we've got it under control, everything's going to be fine. When they when they pivot on a dime when things start to fall apart and say, well, actually, uh, the whole thing's falling apart because we don't have more power and more control, you know you're being lied to. You're being gaslit by people that are just creating suffering and then grandstanding on your suffering to push for more control over your life. And you know where that's going to lead. For the COVID lockdowns and everything that went along with that, some of the statist excuses would be, well, we had never dealt with a pandemic like that. What else were we supposed to do? Sure, we locked people down. Some people will admit even a little, yeah, we got carried away, but we really didn't have many options. So that's kind of a built-in statist uh, excuse that seems to be sticking around with some people that I encounter, uh, despite all the evidence. And it seems like we'll maybe indefinitely be a part of the statist uh, rhetoric. What do you think the built-in excuses for this would be? One of them I've thought of is, or I've heard of, could be people say, well, those were cryptocurrency-based banks. And so what we need is more regulation, Spike. We need more regulation. Had we had more regulation, this wouldn't have happened. Yeah, well, I mean, the one thing I would say if they're trying to blame it on crypto, uh, SVB had essentially very, very little exposure to crypto. Uh, Signature Bank had a little bit more, but it was still in the, the I, I think, high single digits. It was mostly uh, catered to real estate companies and, and other companies in various, but it was a much smaller bank. It was a niche bank for a handful of companies. Uh, Trump was actually one of their clients years ago, um, but they, uh, you know, that so no, these were not crypto banks by any stretch of the imagination. And even the big 
one that did fail, um, the FTX failure, um, that was because of fraud. That had nothing to do with crypto. That was just fraud that was happening. Um, so, I mean, if that's one of their excuses, it's a poor one. It would be like, uh, you know, blaming the mortgage crisis on, uh, on you know, uh, uh, fast food locations or something like that, which has nothing to do with what the mortgage crisis was. But um, yeah, I mean, I think the big excuse that we will hear or the big talking point that we will hear uh, is uh, it, because it's their siren call at all times. Regulations could have stopped this. We need more regulations. But what we see is that regulations are something that make doing business cost prohibitive for smaller competitors and for everyone else. They just find ways around the regulations or they just straight up break the regulations and the uh, government step in to cover for them because the governing agencies that are supposed to be making sure that these companies are obeying them are filled with a bunch of former and current execs uh, and, and uh, employees of those self-same companies. So it's, it is... A, it is the foxes guarding a hen house where half the fens are half the uh, hens are also foxes as well. So no, regulations are not going to fix this. What's going to fix this is addressing how it happened in the first place, which is easy money being handed out by the federal government and being created and handed out by the Federal Reserve. And the reason that that's happening is because government is not like the rest of us. They get to print out money using the Federal Reserve at will. So where the rest of us actually have to get money somehow, either by good or bad means, they don't have to do that. They just have to print it out. I mean, imagine if you could legally print out as much money as you wanted. You're not going to make very good decisions, and eventually it's going to catch up and, and, and hurt you and everything you care about because you can just constantly keep throwing money around. In fact, you might actually be insulated from the consequences of your bad decisions uh, because you can just keep printing money out, but anyone who's anywhere near you is going to have to suffer from the fact that the cost of everything's going up through the roof because you can pay a, a trillion billion dollars for it and they can't uh and they're gonna have to suffer from those other consequences while you just keep printing money out endlessly and that's what we're seeing with this that's the problem not some lack of regulations march 10th of 2023 uh svb uh, is listed at least on their wikipedia page as being defunct once again effective march 10th 2023 back in 2008 actually september 15th 2008 was the bankruptcy of Lehman Brothers. Uh, what type mm -hmm. of, of similarities are there between these two instances? And do you think they will be handled by the federal government, really the Federal Reserve, uh, similarly? Or, or what are the important talking points about the similarities and differences between these two instances? Sure. So the similarity is malinvestment that caught up with them. The difference was that the 2008 crashes were more related to uh, mortgages, um, which then very quickly went into annuities and other insured products uh, as the stock market started going just, just bottoming out. Um, so just a little perspective there. Uh, a lot of people have investments in something called annuities, which guarantee that your investment amount won't go be below a certain level. It, it won't rise as fast as like, you know, typical mutual fund investing and things like that. You only see, you know, uh, basically doing a little bit better than inflation, maybe somewhere between five and 10% per year. But if you have a bad year in the markets, they guarantee that it won't go below whatever your, your threshold is that you've already reached. The problem is that has to be insured by someone. And if the stock market collapses enough, someone's got to pay for that offset, especially when people start pulling out their investments because they need cash or because they're panicking. And so that's that was a big contributor to, the, to that as well. So this isn't exactly the same for, for a few reasons, but the common thread 
is that a bunch of money was being handed out willy-nilly and the banks were uh, the, the bank was making very bad investment decisions and again this is not the only bank that has done this they were just i think the reason that they were the first one to fail was because they panicked and started doing this asset sale and then announced that they were going to sell the bank and they in retrospect i don't know what the hell they were thinking but they they made some really kind of stupid intuitively stupid decisions that a lot of other banks wouldn't make but the reality is a lot of other banks are losing money hand over fist right now they might be a little more savvy in how to how to handle those waters but if the rates continue to go up and if inflation continues to go up, which means it's not going to stop, uh, it's not going to stop inflation, which means you're going to you're going to see the the recession happen anyway. Um, then these banks are going to fail. Um, and in terms of the the federal government and the Fed's reaction, their reaction to everything is always the same. We need to throw more money at the people that put us in office. Uh, we need to uh, we need to you know always be blameless. We we can't ever accept responsibility. We have to always blame it on the fact that there wasn't enough regulation while continuing to do the very thing that caused it to happen in the first place, which is handing out corporate welfare for the federal government and uh, handing out free money at you know close to or at zero percent, uh, which is what the Federal uh, Reserve does for for banks. I heard somewhere I think there was a a, a person at Silicon Valley Bank who, as you said earlier, they ended up making a decision to invest some of their uh, uh, cash into, I think it was a 1%, maybe mortgage-backed security or yeah, somehow. Yeah, 1.5%. But I, I yep. think, okay, one and a half. I think it was like a 10-year investment. So it yep. did, didn't have the liquidity that that you know you would want from an investment. But at the time when they did this, not only did we have historically low interest rates? But I think it had been 12 or 13 years where rates have just been low, 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 even lower. I mean, it just looked yeah. like we were in a, a, a eternal low interest rate environment. So that one person made that investment that ended up really screwing with their liquidity and impacted the um, SVB um, future, of course, quite a bit. Do you think that person should be legally held responsible, maybe prison time, something like that? Because they do have a, a fiduciary. I used to be a licensed Series 7 licensed stockbroker, an insurance agent, still an insurance agent. I mean, I know what uh, fiduciary responsibility means. I know it doesn't always hold up that way in court, but do you think the person who yeah. made those horrible decisions should be held legally responsible? Yeah. So uh, first of all, I want to say, I don't know that it was a specific person or if there was a, a, a team that was doing this. I, I would presume with a bank this big, it was probably a team. I, I will say that um, in terms of being criminally liable, unless they can demonstrate that there was some uh, malicious intent or, uh, or corrupt intent as opposed to just making a really crappy investing decision, then probably not. I think they can certainly be sued into oblivion um, and should be um, because this was an absolute garbage decision. There are easily other investments that are far more liquid and have a far higher yield of 1.5%, but I think it was just whatever the easiest thing was. And I also think that, and, and I, I believe that up until... About this time last year, there was this pervasive feeling in much of the business world, certainly in banking, but even in, in the startup world and in the and in the corporate world in general, that the era of essentially zero percent interest rates 
was never going to end. Or if it did go up, it would, you know, maybe it would go up to 1% or something like that. And if you got you got to factor in adjusting for inflation, a 0% interest rate is actually a negative interest rate. If I am, if I know that I can get money from you, if I can get a thousand dollars from you at 0% interest in today's dollars, and I have X amount of time, let's say I have five years to pay you that thousand dollars back. When I'm paying you that money back in three or four years from now, I'm essentially giving you money that is worth less than the money that you gave me. So you're basically giving me money at a discount. So of course banks are going to take as much as they possibly can. And of course corporations are going to take as much as they possibly can because it's basically discounted, adjusted inflation, uh, inflation adjusted, discounted money. And the idea that that was going to last forever would mean that you would believe, because the only reason that the Federal Reserve ever increases interest rates is because uh, due to very high inflation, uh, that you would believe that infl- that would never catch up with us, that we would never experience much higher than normal inflation. Well, especially after the CARES Act and the other corporate welfare that happened uh, mostly under the Trump administration, but some of it under the Biden administration as well, to see that that was passed And that in just 2020, that I think, what was it, 25% of every, uh, one out of every $4 that had ever been printed ever was was being printed that year. The idea that that was not going to catch up with us in the form of higher prices, especially with the disruption that happened to the supply chain and to the labor force as a result of the lockdowns and all these massive furloughs that happened, that that wasn't going to lead to a recession coupled with inflation, which would inevitably mean that the Fed would have to increase rates. It just meant they were being stupid or, which is also a form of being stupid, they were just listening to whatever the government said and saying, well, I guess it will never happen if they're not saying it's going to happen, as though there was no ability to forecast this. So, yeah, I think they should at the very least uh, be sued into oblivion for this ridiculously economically illiterate decisions that were being made. Um, But I'm not sure that it it rises to the level of criminal because you'd have to actually prove that there was some criminal intent behind it and and there may have been but if that can't be proven then it would just be that they should be they can and should be sued completely into oblivion if they even have any money yet because they were not bailed out the the investors and owners were not bailed out that explanation the last explanation you gave where they said maybe they didn't quite understand it but they said well this is (laughs) this is what the government's telling us to do so this must be the case that really embodies that reminds me of the Chernobyl documentary or, or film yes. that I watched where the, and I don't know if this is the best parallel, but ultimately the guy in charge of the nuclear power facility, um, you know, they screwed up. Something happened wrong and it could have been fixed, yep. but the government was just so involved in it that they, there was really nowhere to go. You can't tell your boss you screwed this up. You can't. So, I mean, you just have to say, ultimately the government was so big for lack of a better term, it just fucked everything up. And this is the problem with having government involved in things, Kelly, because if the sector itself is involved in, is involved in something and they, they know they're not going to get bailed out by the government, they know they're not being given political um, go, uh, goals and uh, objectives by the government, their only objective is profits and protecting the money of, and assets of their, of their clients and customers. They're going to have to, and they know they're not getting bailed out if something goes wrong. At that point, 
the banks that do stupid stuff like this, they go bye-bye and never come back. And the banks that make good decisions, and this is, by the way, irrespective of size, because there are some small banks that make very good, downright conservative investment decisions. My, my local bank that I use is one of them. Good luck getting a mortgage from them. Uh, nor would you want to because the rates aren't competitive, but it's because that's not their game. Their game is protecting, the making a decent, moder uh, moderate uh, profit from uh, you know having uh, you know safe deposits deposits or keeping the deposits of their uh, and, and, and moderate investments of their of their local clientele safe. Uh, so you would see more of that. You would see banks big and small that made good sound decisions that would stay in the game and the rest would go away because they're making business decisions. They're making banks they're making their banks that are making banking decisions. What we have right now is banks are making political decisions. And they're making banking decisions that are heavily influenced by politics. The reason that free money was being handed out was because the government had a political interest in showing that they were, quote unquote, doing something to fix the economy that they themselves had destroyed with their ridiculous COVID regime orders. Um, and so in doing so, they're having to create busy work and show that they're doing something, even though we know from multiple cycles of this happening, that when they hand out money like this, it leads to massive inflation, malinvestment, and then when the correction starts to happen, it becomes a bust. It's the boom-bust cycle. We know that it happens, but because of political considerations and because, unfortunately, most people are not that economically savvy, they don't spot the cycles, and so they just, you know, again, they've been told by the government that this is how it works, and they go, okay, well, then I guess that's how it works. But it's it's bad enough for just an average person on the street to, to think that. That. These are the so-called experts, or many of the so-called experts in the field. But we saw that with COVID. We saw so many medical experts who usually would want to apply the scientific method to something like the idea of a of stay-at-home orders and say, is there any evidence that this is going to work? Have we ever seen this work on a smaller scale? Is there any reason to believe that a, a highly transmissible respiratory virus that spreads at that point uh, as easily as the cold? Now, it, with the newer variants, it spreads like chickenpox. I mean, you are going to get it, basically. Um, but even back then, you know, this spreads more easily than the flu. Is telling people that they should stay in their poorly ventilated homes venturing out only to go to the exact same four or five stores that we've allowed to remain open at the same time that everyone else is going there because we also issued uh, um, a curfew. And, and so now people are limiting their hours and their locations that they're together. And then they go back home to their poorly ventilated homes to breathe into the into their atmosphere in their home, whatever they picked up at the store. Hey, wait, that sounds a lot like cold and flu season. And it's those conditions that leads cold and flu to spread way easier than it does the rest of the year when people spend more time outside and uh, are more active and go more places than just going to specific places to get the things that they absolutely need. Hey, maybe we shouldn't be doing that. Maybe that will actually backfire or at the very least not be a good idea. But because the government was involved and the so-called government experts were involved and the corporate media was involved to shame anyone who even questioned the narrative briefly as being some kind of terrible monster that wanted us all to die in some COVID apocalypse, it shut people up or in many cases made them just shrug their shoulders and say, yeah, I guess this is the best way forward. And we're seeing many of them now saying, yeah, you know what, in retrospect, I shouldn't have believed that. Yeah, you shouldn't have. But that's the problem with getting government involved. Instead of making decisions, instead of experts making decisions based on their expertise, they are being coerced and sometimes, um, uh, sometimes rewarded, but definitely coerced 
into making political decisions. The recent bank failures, do you think this is, let's imagine Trump had won the election in 2020 instead of Biden. Can you, uh, uh, do you believe the Trump administration would have handled this any different than the Biden administration? No, because this is, you know, what Trump would call the deep state. This is the, the bureaucrat class doing this. And again, frankly, I, I, th- I personally believe my theory uh, is that if Trump had gotten reelected, especially because the Republicans uh, gained some seats, everyone forgets or many people forget in 2020, the Republicans had a great year except for the White House. They actually gained uh, at almost every level. They gained seats. And if that had happened and Trump had won, the spending that Trump and the bipartisan Congress had done in 2020 would have paled in comparison to the spending he would have done in 21 and, and 22 and moving forward. And so I think the inflation potentially could have been even worse because instead of the Republicans and more moderate Democrats pushing back against Biden for spending so much. Instead, they would be up at the trough saying, yeah, MAGA, make America great again. We beat Biden. We're going to spend, 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 which is what happens when Republicans take over things. They they spend in ways that make Democrats blush, oddly enough, uh, despite them pretending to be the budget hawks and, and wanting a smaller government. Um, they actually, in many cases, are worse than the, uh, than the Democrats are. That was certainly the case under Reagan and, and Bush. Um, but anyway, so no, I think it's potentially that all of these conditions would have actually been worse, which means there would have been uh, e- even more um, even more bank failures and even more inflation. But let's say it had been about the same. I, I think give or take, it would probably be about the same, maybe a little bit, little bit better, maybe a little, probably a little bit worse, but certainly not dramatically different. Um, this would have happened to SVB or some other bank, and the uh, Treasury would have bailed them out. Um, I would like to think that if they chose to bail them out, that they only would have bailed out the depositors uh, and not uh, not bailed out the um, not bailed out the um, the the owners and the investors. Which, uh, to their credit, that's what uh, the Biden administration did. They only bailed out the depositors. Which you know, I mean, a bailout's a bailout, but it's at least they were only bailing out the people who had no decision making process in this in this bad investment, and they didn't bail out investors and and uh, and owners who were actually making these decisions. Um, and I think that it would be the same decision afterwards to say, well, we'll never do this again unless the bank is too big to fail. Which again is is going to tell you know if you're someone that has you know more than two hundred and fifty thousand dollars in a bank account somewhere you're going to look and see is my bank consider I think it's I think they call it systemically necessary or something like that they have a term for too big to fail and if your bank isn't one of those banks well you'd be an idiot not to move it from that smaller bank to the bigger bank well let's look let's let's look through what would actually happen in a in in, in a, as a result of that if a bunch of millionaires start pulling millions of dollars out of small banks that have less liquidity than big banks that's going to create a run on the smaller banks, which is why I think over the next few weeks and months, we're going to see even more smaller banks fail as a direct result of that. As, as more and more of these people that have a bunch of money in these banks go, wait a second, I, I got to pull my money out of the such and such neighborhood bank and put it in Bank of America or, or J.P. Morgan Chase or, or Wells Fargo. Uh, that's going to hurt these banks. So we'll see what happens. But no, I don't think there would have been a, a dramatically bit difference uh, between if Trump had been in office and Biden had been in office. Fractional reserve banking is a, yes. a term that 
maybe a lot of the, the population isn't really familiar with. But in effect, a brief description would be fractional reserve banking is a system in which only a fraction of bank deposits are required to be available for withdrawal. And that sounds, if you really think about that and you're depositing money into a bank, it doesn't really make sense. But at its core is fractional reserve banking, which is not only used in the United States, but really all across the world. At its core, is that the problem here, Spike? I think that the fractions being as low as they are are the problem. I mean, uh, my understanding is that, uh, and I don't know if this has changed, but recently the Federal Reserve, at least for some banks, was allowing them to have a 0% reserve, meaning that they could literally have no money in their bank or effectively no money in their bank. And that's insane. Now, you know, anything short of keeping every single penny in the bank that is being deposited is technically considered fractional reserve banking. And, and to understand fractional reserve banking, let's back up a little to the history of banking. Banks originally, we're talking hundreds, hundreds of years ago, banks originally was a pl were a place that people could store their gold and precious metals. And you know, when paper uh, currency started coming out, they could store them there as well. They could also use safe deposits uh, to store any kinds of valuables, jewels and all sorts of stuff. And um, particularly the gold that was in there, the, the, the banking business, business was they would hold the money and they would charge uh, some kind of a fee or, or a percentage of the value of what was being held to the depositor uh, for the safekeeping. Well, after a while, they realized that many of these depositors would keep most or all of what they had in the bank in there for years, like decades sometimes. Uh, and so they, they eventually started going to their clients and saying, hey, how about instead of us charging you this fee, how about instead we invest X amount of the money that's in here? So all your money isn't you know liquid and available. You can't just come in and grab it, but we make some money off of that and now it's free to deposit your money here or we charge you much less, basically free banking. And most depositors were fine with that. Now, I would imagine back then the, the percentages were much uh, lower that they would take out. You know, maybe they'd keep half in the bank or they'd, they'd keep 75% of it or whatever in the bank. So I, I wouldn't say necessarily that in, in, a, in a true free market banking system, removing the Federal Reserve, removing federal government involvement, removing state central banks and, and state uh, coerced fiat currency and just having true free, free market banking, I think there'd be some level of fractional reserve banking, but it would have to be at an equilibrium of what the market could actually bear. Banks who know they're not going to get bailed out aren't going to have reserves of 0%. They're going to have enough where they can protect themselves against a potential run on their bank so that their depositors feel safe. They'd also probably have insurance policies on some of their bigger uh, bigger uh, deposits that are in there in case something goes wrong, it's insured, and, and there's an underwriter backing it. Well, if it's insured, that means the underwriter wants to make sure that they're uh, engaging in sound banking. So instead of, again, having politicians and bureaucrats and cronies and, uh, and central banks bankers uh, involved. Now you have actual people with skin in the game, the actual bank deposit, bank owners who know that they don't have, uh, they're not going to get bailed out. The insurers who know they're not going to get bailed out and therefore need to make sure that these banks are, are on the up and up and, and doing sound uh, banking decisions. So I think there'd still be some fractional uh, uh, fractional reserve banking just to allow for the free or, or low cost banking model and for the banks to be able to make more profit and for their investors to make more profit. But the, the fractions would be nowhere near as low as they are now. And they wouldn't be making these dumb decisions like getting into 10 year bonds at or 10 year securities at one and a half percent and that kind of nonsense. 
it does just seem like a legal Ponzi scheme, really. Oh, yeah. No, it I, is. I, it is. I mean, it, it is, as is. long as it's legal, it's like uh, when Fauci said that there had been royalties received uh, by maybe him and others for these pharmaceutical products. I know this is a different mm-hmm. topic. His explanation was there's no law against that, and you can't yeah. really argue with it. So technically, I mean, that was legal. This is legal. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Everything's just set up for corruption at, at all levels, it appears. And not only is it legal, but when you make something legal and then say, and we'll bail you out if it fails. You're telling competitors who don't want to do that, that they're idiots. So if I want to have a bank where I don't do these very unsafe things that, you know, yes, I have more potential upside for profit, but then it can fail when I'm actually trying to make good decisions with the money that I'm a steward of. And the feds go, okay, well, if you did do it, you'd make more money. And if it failed, we'd bill you out anyway. What kind of moron would I be to engage in uh, in, um, in in you know sound banking practices or sound any kind of practices? I mean, you can apply this to anything. As soon as the government starts stepping in and telling uh, you know telling airlines or banks or other big businesses, retailers or whatever else that they're going to bail them out if they fail, they're also telling the ones who are doing the right thing that you're an idiot for not doing stupid things. So not only do they make it legal. But in a way, they they all but mandate it. They all but say, if you do it this way, you're an idiot. And in fact, we saw in the in the run up to 2008, some of the banks that were refusing to do the risky lending practices, the federal government started threatening that they were going to investigate them for racial discrimination. Because they were saying, you know, we don't want to give uh, low, uh, we don't want to give these uh, low interest, no income, no assets, no verifications loans, so-called ninja loans. We don't want to give this to people who have credit scores below 600. Well, statistically, racial minorities are more likely to have lower credit scores. So you had the federal government saying, well, you know what? If you're saying you're not going to give credit score, uh, g- give these risky loans to people unless they're credit, or, or you're not going to give them at all, or you're not going to give these loans to people that have these, uh, you know, lower credit scores, we could see that as, as racial discrimination. And so you saw banks, I believe BB&T was one of them, but you saw multiple banks that went, okay, fine, we'll give the loans just back off of us. So in that case, they were mandating risky lending practices, which helped contribute to the mortgage crisis. Which is absolutely wild because in effect, when you give a loan, let's say a home loan to someone who has a lower credit score, maybe isn't in the best financial situation, that's not yeah. helping them. That's that's no. building up a bunch of debt for that person. And in the yeah. long run, it's going to hurt them. So, I mean, they're accusing them of being racist when you could make a legitimate argument that it's the other way around. Absolutely. And especially if now they're doing it because they don't want to be arrested or, or charged. Char- they wouldn't be arrested, but, uh, you know, fined and, and sued by the federal government for being racist. They're now literally doing it for racial reasons, knowing that it's actually a bad decision for them and for the lo- uh, for the uh, for the borrowers. So, yeah, now it actually is racist, or at least the, the federal government getting involved in it is racist. Uh, I saw a recent thing where some there's been some uh, banks that are, uh, you know, in certain communities are giving, uh, are, are doing what they're calling equity, uh, equity loans. Uh, and not equity in the in the old sense of you know having equity in 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 the property having something uh, that's secured uh, against the loan ha- that kind of equity but equity meaning like racial equity and so they're giving low interest loans to minorities in poor neighborhoods 
Now you have a background in finance. What do you think is going to happen there? Like, can obviously, it's obvious that you're taking people who are in low-income areas, who are low-income themselves, and saying, "Here's some money." And the and the idea is, well, we're trying to stop gentrification. Well, you and I both know this is going to supercharge gentrification. All this money is going to be thrown around, which is going to price so many people out of the market for properties in that area, which means even more higher income people uh, are going to come in, especially as many of those people are unable to pay their loans and they get foreclosed. And then here comes someone who has some cash or has some equity who can buy it for pennies on the dollar. So this is actually going to supercharge uh, gentrification and actually supercharge uh, the the uh, lowering of the median interest rate or the median credit score for uh, for racial minorities, at least in those areas where they're targeting them for that. And the bankers have to know that because they know how this stuff works, but they're selling it as racial equity. So if you speak out against it and say, actually, this is going to hurt the very people that it's claiming to help. Now you're the racist for claiming that. Thomas Sowell just popped into my head when he's speaking of <laughs> affirmative action and the yep. minorities who maybe their test scores don't don't warrant them going to an Ivy League school, but because of affirmative action, they're able to get into a a program at you know Yale that they don't they maybe wouldn't have qualified for if it wasn't for them being a minority. Then that sounds good. It's presented as if it's uh, uh, anti-racism and it's pro-minority. Right. But over yep, yep. the long run, if you really track how that individual then does in that program, sometimes they they not shockingly they score toward the bottom of their class. Uh, more yep. likely. And it's not because those type of people are dumb or anything like that. It's just that specific person wasn't no, as qualified they, for the, the, the program and it screwed everything up and it ends up uh, negatively impacting that individual to however many degrees beyond what yep. the original place we started at was. Exactly. And it's, and like you said, it's not because they're dumb. It's because that individual person wasn't ready to perform at that level. So then what happens is the uh, Ivy League universities go, uh, all right, fine. Well, we'll just keep this thing going and we'll, we'll pass them through with lower scores. So now what happens is, and we've seen this in the corporate world, especially in the big business world, if someone comes in who is a racial minority who has graduated from a good university, they assume that they were an affirmative action or racial uh, diversity uh, uh, graduate, whether or not they were, and then they put them in the, you know, the, the, the racial equity department or they'll put them in HR, they'll put them in the department where in their mind they can do the least damage and uh, and and basically assume that they're low performing because of their skin color, even if they were not low performing. And so what happens is we see these, uh, you know, the so-called racial equity, which is these major corporations, which have, you know, a bunch of, uh, you know, minorities, whatever they're declared minor racial, ethnic, uh, and uh, I guess gender and sexual minorities in this one department, the DEI department or the uh, uh, diversity department or HR or some combination of those things while all of the other departments are just filled with white people. And that's, that is as a direct result of saying, okay, we're going to, we're going to, uh, you know, basically segregate from, from the moment of them entering higher education, we're going to segregate these specific minorities and, uh, and give them different treatment than we give everyone else. And as a direct result, you've got the, the companies saying, okay, well, we're going to continue to segregate them in the departments where they're the least likely to, to be a liability if they were someone that isn't ready to, to work in our field and, and was just graduated through because of their race. And that hurts, it hurts everyone, but it 
especially hurts those racial minorities who weren't poor, poorly performing and who weren't, uh, you know, being the beneficiaries of, of uh, racial diversity hiring. Uh, and a perfect example of that is Asian Americans, because they're generally speaking, perform much higher than everyone, even including white people. They've actually been given negative scores and we have not seen it negatively impact their higher ability or their prospects for the future. Because when you see an Asian person that has graduated, you make the assumption that it was harder for them than anyone else, which means you're more likely to give them a higher performing position within the company. And then the final form of, of uh, affirmative action is what we're now seeing with this DEI and ESG, where the companies go, okay, fine, we'll continue doing it here. Well, those are the canaries in the coal mine because they're not laser focused on performance and profits. They're laser focused on a political goal or on a social goal. And it's for many reasons. It's because maybe they personally politically want to do so. It's because they may be, uh, you know, they may get special treatment from uh, government agencies that they have contracts with. There's a myriad of reasons why they do it. But guaranteed dollars to donuts as this economy starts to falter, those are going to be the first ones to go the way of the dodo because they're the ones that aren't best positioned for actual business purposes. They're best positioned for political purposes. And we need to get government out of things because that's what happens. Companies positioned for political purposes fail along political lines and then it becomes a political problem instead of just letting these companies either succeed or fail. And if they fail, they learn. And if they succeed, they learn too. And the rest of us aren't stuck with it as a social problem. I want to make sure I uh, put this in the best way possible. Um, Spike, you mentioned you're a former neocon so I guess that means at one point you had identified yourself as a Republican. Uh, yes, I was a Republican. So I, I was, um, I always kind of, in retrospect, lean libertarian. Like growing up, I, I've always, even as a Republican, I never supported restrictions to uh, gun ownership or anything like that. But I also never really thought it was anyone's business, you know, who you loved or, you know, your sexuality or anything like that. And I, I, I never thought the war on drugs was a good idea. So I was always kind of libertarian leaning at the very least. I just, I really didn't trust the government. I was raised not to trust the government and I've, I've stuck with it. Um, but, um, but you know, when 9-11 happened, I was like, the Democrats are on the side of the terrorists, even though the Democrats were 100% on board with the, the military industrial complex or whatever, but they were playing the foil to, to George Bush. So, you know, Bush and the Republicans are going to save us from the, the Muslim terrorists and the Democrats uh, want to surrender our country. I mean, I feel like an idiot saying this stuff, but I believed it. And so, yeah, I was a Republican for uh, quite a few years. I, I actually registered. I think I'm actually still technically registered as one. They stopped party registration, but when I registered, it was as a Republican. Um, but today when you speak, I think you do a great job of presenting the evils of going too far to the left or to the right is really being equal in a lot of ways. So fascism and communism, let's say, are, are really pretty similar, uh, at the end of the day. So I don't hear you talking specifically to Republicans or even any of your rhetoric doesn't really even, uh, um, pigeonhole you as being someone who's associated more with being toward the right than the left or anything like that or to the left more to the left than to the right so i think you're a a, a good uh um person to ask this question to you met my wife yanni of course she's from cuba mm -hmm. and she is more familiar of course with communism than anything else for many yes. years the left and communists have embraced a social justice type rhetoric. So that's nothing new. Would you agree the current state 
of the big government in the United States, although it's not exactly like fascist, uh, you know, Pinochet or Mussolini or Hitler or exactly, or it's not exactly like even Fidel Castro or Joseph Stalin, communist. Of course. Um, would you agree the social justice uh, elements to the current state of our, our, our country are more similar to that of what is traditionally identified as socialist or communist? Oh, they would identify themselves as such. Most of them would. Um, and, the, and the thing is, uh, it's interesting about communists. They are all about justice until they're in charge. And then suddenly they're not about justice anymore. And so justice basically becomes uh, a, a catch-all term uh, or, or really a rallying cry against whatever imperialist or fascist or whatever else threat that they're, that they're going against. I mean, let's be very clear. Uh, a Fidel Castro, and it's interesting, Fidel Castro wasn't even a communist when, uh, when he first took over uh, from uh, Batista. Uh, he was basically pushed to the Soviet Union because the U.S. government, uh, on the behest of the mob, uh, tried to have him killed under Kennedy because Kennedy was basically beholden to the mob for uh, you know helping him get elected uh, with the unions and so he you know owed them a favor and so the Bay of Pigs happened and and the attempt to you know put an explosive in Fidel Castro's uh, cigar happened and all of that and so finally Castro's like okay fine I'm going to work with the USSR and then that's when you saw Castro uh, who had been working with communists from the beginning to be clear but he himself was very much a communist but I mean he loved America he loved baseball he was a baseball he was actually a very good baseball player and um, and uh, had actually played, I think, as an amateur and uh, very much into American culture. But he was an anti-imperialist and he was against the terrible things that Batista was doing. There was an opportunity to work with someone. And instead, we the uh, the U.S. government pushed him into uh, into uh, the, the, the hands of the, the the arms of the USSR and the, the, the Chai comms in China. But generally speaking, whether we're talking about Fidel Castro, whether we're talking about uh, Lenin, uh, whether we're talking about uh, um, Pol Pot, whether we're talking about the uh, the North Vietnamese, uh, Chiang, uh, Chiang Kai-shek, um, um, not Chiang Kai-shek, I'm forgetting his name at the moment, but uh, but yeah, the, the, whether we're talking about any of these uh, uh, communist revolutions that have happened, they've always happened because there was a really bad government in place that was being very oppressive to the people. And so they were willing to try anything at that point, right? Uh, Chiang Kai-shek was in China. Yeah, uh, Ho Chi Minh. Uh, against Ma yeah, yeah Ho, Ho Chi Minh was, yes, Ho Chi Minh in, in uh, Vietnam uh, and, uh, and uh, Chiang and Kai-shek was in um was in China, but these were all, all of these happened because the people rose up under the banner of communism, which sounds good. We're going to take the power back and give it to the people, but it's not giving it to the people. It's taking the power and giving it to these people, these specific people who are now going to collectivize everything. And so inevitably communist revolutions end up creating governments that are far worse than they were placed. But yes, in any country that they're not in charge, they always take up the rallying cry of the poor and the and the downtrodden and those who are being harmed. And very often, many of the things that they're saying are correct. The problem, and and this is where you can see that where the problem is, we can see the fruits of what they're what they're pushing for. You know, I don't see communists, maybe communists are saying let's end qualified immunity, but then they're also saying the problem is capitalism. And the problem is that we haven't collectivized everything. And the problem is private property ownership, 
Well, no, the problem is that the government is not accountable when they do bad things. And we can agree on that. We can certainly push to end that. But the answer isn't to make the government into a super state that essentially owns everything. And we all are living in a, in a commune or a collective and unable to own things for ourselves. Or there are these weird arbitrary definitions of what we can or can't own, which are being decided arbitrarily by whatever, you know, whatever the, the local Politburo is. Uh, so if you're not connected with them, they're gonna, you're going to be on the short end of the stick every time and very quickly be labeled the, uh, the bourgeoisie, which means you're less than than human and they can basically kill you and, and you know put you in a gulag or put your head up against a wall and shoot you all of that comes from communist dogma so yeah i mean i would say that most of the people that that say that they're pushing for what they would call social justice are probably on the left but the reality is most of them are just identifying with the only thing they think is actually trying to push for these necessary changes i've met many former leftists who are now libertarians and in some cases anarcho-capitalists because the reason they were leftists was because they thought that the right was on the side of the powerful and the left was on the side of the powerless and so they were they're going to be the leftists but once they saw that it was all just a big rope-a-dope and that the republicans and democrats are working together all day long and that the things being proposed by the socialists and communists are even worse than the status quo and they realize that the real answer is really giving the power back to the people in like actually giving it back to them by decentralizing power and breaking down these power structures and putting the hands back in putting the power back in the hands of the individual to be able to voluntarily work with each other now they've become libertarian so you know i will talk with just about anyone and even and work with just about anyone on issues that we agree on but in doing so i will also talk about what got us here and what the solution is and if if they're saying the solution is you know uh breaking the chains and 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 you know implementing full communism we're certainly going to have a conversation about that and i, I also i want to thank you because um you mentioned that my message doesn't really sound like i'm catering to the left or the right and that's correct and i'm, I'm glad that it's being taken that way my message when i'm putting together my messaging or a post I try to consider myself that I'm, I try to envision that I'm speaking to the vast majority of people who just know something's wrong and they might identify as Republican, they might identify as Democrat, they might identify as a centrist, they might identify as not very political, which is most people, or someone who's just, you know, upset about politics or doesn't stay involved, they're all a bunch of liars, because that's the real majority, the real mega majority in this country and, and around the world are people that are just fed up and they want to see a real solution to problems that they're facing. So that's who I speak to. And uh, they're going to make up uh, across the political spectrum. But honestly, most of them are going to be people that don't consider themselves left or right or centrist or anything else. They're just sick of it. You are welcome. I, I did mean that as a, a serious compliment. Uh, you you, you. managed to do a good job of speaking to the left and to the right and to the middle and everybody. Um, and also within the libertarian political infighting that happens within all political groups. I'm not saying it's unique <laughs> yes. to libertarians. Oh, yes. um, you do a good job of kind of staying above it and, and not in an arrogant type of way, but you, you don't seem to get real involved in, in much of the infighting. Actually, recently, I'll ask you, did I see a post recently that made it sound like uh, the Libertarian Party might lose ballot access all across in all 50 states, which we had in 2020? What is the, the status of that so, right now? 
Yeah, so what's happening right now is we wouldn't lose it in all 50 states. What it's saying is our ability to have the status in all 50 states is in jeopardy uh, more so than, than ever before. And basically, it's because an increasing number of states, the Republicans and Democrats, are ratcheting up the, the ballot access requirements so that effectively only they can get on the ballot. Um, you know, if there's one thing that Republicans and Democrats always agree on, it's that no one else should be able to really compete against them um, for the ballot. And so, you know, the Libertarian Party has been able to get on all 50 state ballots for, I believe, three elections in a row. Well, that was completely unacceptable to the Republicans or Democrats, despite the fact that, you know, we got, you know, our high watermark is like three percent. Um, that was simply unacceptable. People need to be voting Democrat or Republican. And so, yeah, it's, it, it is increasingly unlikely that the uh, LP will have ballot access in all 50 states. It's not impossible, um, but, mo- but it's because they're just making it harder and harder, especially in places like, uh, in like New York, um, in Tennessee. Uh, just to put it in perspective, in Tennessee, if you want to run as a Republican or a Democrat, you have to get 25 signatures uh, on a ballot access petition, which kind of makes sense. Like they just want to make sure, you know, every Tom, Dick and Harry can't announce their candidacy and, and demand to be on the ballot. The ballot would be, you know, as big as the Bible uh, if, if that were the case. You know, 25 signatures. If you can't get 25 valid signatures for a race, whether it's city council, uh, president, whatever you're running for, then, you know, may, maybe you should consider not running if you can't get at least 25 signatures. That makes sense. That's if you're a Republican or a Democrat. If you are running as anything else, like a libertarian, you have to get 50,000 signatures. Jeez. Any race, even in races where there's nowhere near that many people running or that many people voting, you have to get 50,000 signatures. And because the Democrats and the Republicans control the election courts, which look at these signatures and try to invalidate as many of the petitions as possible for the most specious of reasons, uh, you know, someone's signature went just outside of the box uh, or someone had, uh, I can't tell if that's a nine or an eight or nine or an eight or a six on their uh, uh, zip code. So I'm going to invalidate the entire petition with all of the signatures on that page, you really have to get 100,000 signatures, which means you really cannot get on the ballot. Like the way it is now, you basically cannot get it on the ballot, uh, get on the ballot if you're not a Republican or Democrat. Uh, There's a group called For All Tennessee, which tried to change uh, the rules. They they lobbied to change the rules so that um, it would only be, I think, five or 10,000 signatures uh, if you weren't a Republican or Democrat. So still, you know, many thousands of times higher than the Republicans and Democrats have to do, uh, or many hundreds of times higher, but somewhat more reasonable. Uh, they actually had, enough, here's, here's a bit of controversy. In the committee that uh, that was voting on whether to bring it to the full legislature to vote on this, this, this change that would have made it easier for the LP to get on the ballot and, and other third parties to get on the ballot, more, there were more I than nay votes. It was done by a voice vote. They had, I believe, five I votes and three nay votes. But one of those three nays was the head of that committee, and he decided that he heard five I's or five nays and three I's. And so even though everyone in there heard five people say yes and three people say no, he ruled that it was a no vote. That's what we're up against. Even if we get the votes to allow us to be on the ballot, some schmuck will break the law and say 
actually, no, that's, that's, we're not going to allow that anyway. They will do anything to keep us off the ballot. It's been, it is an absolute miracle and a testament to the, the ability of activists in this party to get work done that we're even able to get on the ballot. And the problem is we can't lean too much into that messaging of explaining to voters how hard it is for us to even get on the ballot because even if they agree that that's a terrible, egregious thing, we're basically telling them we can't win. So even if they feel terrible about it, they're less likely to vote for us if they know how much we had to fight even just to get on the ballot. So we kind of have to suck it up and take it even though it's you know, in, manifestly unfair. And the Republicans and Democrats say it's unfair. They they acknowledge that this is unfair. They will say, you know, we are doing this to stop third parties because people are, I, I, in fact, in Tennessee, one of the legislators that voted against it in the committee said, you know, the way I see it is you're either a Republican or you're a Democrat. And if you're voting for these other things, that just confuses people. And they genuinely believe that. And and that's the problem. So, you know, we'll see. I I, I'll, I always hold out hope uh, so we could very well uh, get all 50 state ballots, but they make it harder and harder every single cycle, man. When it comes to voting for president or Senate or Congress, and, and I hear someone say, well, why would I vote for that representative? They don't even have a chance at winning. For a while, yep. that kind of hit me and I, I, I could kind of relate to it. But the more time that goes by, I guess I'm more and more radicalized, Spike, that almost becomes like the worst reason ever. Like, because yeah. because I can't support someone who's going to win, therefore they will uh, drone strike innocent families across the Middle East. I'm going to vote for one of the two that will instead of voting for someone who will not, but they won't win. So because I can't win, I'm going to go ahead and support this. It doesn't even hold up. No, it doesn't hold up. Now, if you are someone who believes that, let's say, the... Uh, the Republican candidate is head and shoulders above the Democrat candidate. So even if the, and you could do this in reverse, that the Democrat candidate is head and shoulders above the Republican candidate. Even if you, you know, agree more with the Libertarian candidate or the Green candidate, but you believe that there's just a monumental difference between the Republican and Democrat candidates. And so then you have to vote strategically, uh, you know, to to stop the, the worse, the lesser, to stop the uh, the lesser evil from losing the election or whatever. I guess I can understand that, although at some point you're just compromising to oblivion. But the thing is, I've spoken to many people who don't see a substantial difference between one or the other, but they still pick one of them because they can win. Like you said, that's like the worst thing ever. You know that they're terrible. You know that things are going to be worse if they get into office. You know that they're part of the problem. You know that they're a big part of the reason that things are as bad as they are, but you voted for them because they have a chance of winning. Well, that's the reason to vote against them. You want to you make it so that they have as little of a chance of winning as possible. So, you know, I, I, I will say this. I become less um, interested in making that argument anymore. Because I've seen that it's largely ineffective. People have to come to the conclusion you've come to or are coming to. They have to see for themselves. Me explaining that to them isn't going to you know, take them off that wagon of voting for the quote-unquote lesser evil. They have to learn that for themselves. And in the meantime, I can be focusing more on demonstrating where we actually can win. Winning at the local level, winning on local issues, winning on getting people involved in the movement. You know, I have the leadership, the volunteer leadership team of You Are the Power is made up mostly of libertarians, but we also have Republicans, 
We have Democrats. Uh, we have members of other third parties. Uh, and we have non-voting anarchists and people that aren't really involved in, in the uh, electoral politics. They, they don't really, they might vote one way or another, but they're not really that involved. But they're all behind the vision, the goals, and the values of you are the power. And those goals are 100% libertarian. And when I say libertarian, I mean the ideology, not the party, because we're a nonpartisan group. And I find it far more rewarding and valuable, the work that we are doing with people of all different political parties, than to try to convince some of those people, well, you know what, you should also be voting for, for you know this party that I'm in. Well, maybe they're not there yet. Mm. But why would I argue with them on that when we spend every single day working on goals and causes that 100% line up with what we both want. Best case scenario over time, they realize that, you know what, I'm, I'm libertarian through and through, even in my party affiliation. Again, you are the power is non is nonpartisan. So, you know, whoever's a part of it is perfectly fine. But, you know, from my personal perspective, maybe my work will convince some of them to join my party as well. But worst case scenario, they don't and never would have and now I'm leveraging what on the party end is my political opponent to work together uh, and ally together on causes to be more likely to be able to have success with, with you know, uh, strength in numbers. So to me, it's all win. And I just, I'm less and less interested in trying to convince people to vote a certain way and more and more interested on working with them on things we already agree on to get things done now to help people now and to grow this movement now. I think you do as good of a job at that as anyone. Spike Cohen, I really appreciate you coming on the show today. Of course, youarethepower.net is the website, but also spikecohen.com. You can see there is an upcoming events uh, page on there. Tuesday, March 21st, University of Cincinnati. March 22nd, which is Wednesday, uh, Athens, Ohio, University of Ohio. And then Thursday, March 23rd, Kent State University. So this upcoming week, Spike, you have three stops in Ohio. Uh, before we wrap up the episode, Spike, is there anything else you would like to mention? Sure, absolutely. So on, on that front, on those three events, those are, as we said before, those are free and open to the public. We do encourage you, uh, there are, uh, if you go to spikecohen.com and you go into the event section, you'll th see those three events. And there are links to register on Eventbrite. Um, we encourage you to register, even though it is free, you can show up even if you don't register. But if you register and there's any kind of a change in venue or time or anything like that, we'll be able to alert you to it. So we do encourage you to sign up so that you can be alerted if, if and when there's changes. With these events, there's always bound to be some kind of you know small change or something like that. So we encourage you to do that. Uh, otherwise, you know if you see what time it is and, and come out, we'd love to have you come out. It is free and open to the public. Uh, I, I guess the one thing I will leave uh, uh, everyone listening to to uh, to this on is this um, you have far more power than you probably know that's why you are constantly being told that there's nothing you can do to stop this that's why you're told that voting third party is a waste of your vote or you know speaking outside of the narrative is a waste of your time or you know getting involved with a group like you or the power or you know any of these or students for liberty or any of these other groups that are doing good work out there it's a waste of your time it's only going to keep getting worse if that were true, they wouldn't have to bother telling you that because whether you did it or not wouldn't matter. They're telling you that to demoralize you because the reality is they can't stop us if we get united and we work together on our common cause. If we realize that the problem is that they have too much power and that there's far too much power in the hands of far too few people, 
And that the solution to that is taking that power, decentralizing it, putting it back in the hands of the people where it always belonged. And then we work together on that goal of breaking down their systems and replacing their politicians. And in some cases, getting government out of uh, various things at, at all, we can make real changes. Like real changes, not the, the, the hashtag change trademark symbol, but real actual changes. And future generations can live uh, in far greener pastures than we currently have right now. And that starts with you recognizing you have far more power than you could ever possibly even realize right now. Um, if you'd like to join You Are The Power and be a part of what we are doing, uh, then I invite you to do so. Again, the website is youarethepower.net. Uh, but if you don't want to get involved in something like that and you just want to be involved in your own community, then do that. Show up to city council meetings. Listen to what they're actually doing. You're going to find stuff that you had no idea was happening. Get involved. Get people in your community involved to stop these things when they, as they're happening or before they happen. Find the people that are showing up to these meetings, pleading their case on the harm that's being done to them by their local government, and organize and rally around them to get justice for them. Find people that are in need and help them. Show that you are a leader in your community by leading your community. You have far more power than you know, and uh, I can't wait to hear all the great things you guys are doing. And Kelly, thanks again for having me on, man. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Spike. I also want to thank everyone for tuning in. Of course, we'll have another episode of The Kelly Patrick Show out soon. 